0: I am David Attenborough, and I am 93. I've had the most extraordinary life. It's only now that I appreciate how extraordinary. The living world is a unique and spectacular marvel. Yet the way we humans live on Earth is sending it into a decline human beings have overrun the world. We're replacing the wild with the tame. This film is my witness statement and my vision of the future. The story of how we came to make this our greatest mistake. And how, if we act now, we can yet put it right. Our planet is headed for disaster. We need to learn how to work with nature rather than against it. I'm going to tell you how.
1: Don't you wish you had a Netflix subscription? (laughs) The end of the world as we know it is no longer a question asked by the kind of sci-fi films of the world and relegated to just cults and crazies with a sandwich board standing on the corner of the street. Our mainstream media, like Netflix, are bringing front and centre the question, when will the world end? Carbon emissions, war, uh, the actions of self-centred humanity are all players in the pantomime of the end of the world. And while Sir David Attenborough speaks more truth than he knows in that great series that's worth checking out at some point, his plan to stop the end of the world is absolutely futile. It won't work. Please hear me very clearly tonight. I'm not saying that um, we don't care about the effects we as humanity are having on the world around us. I'm not proposing we ignore the way that we look after the creation God has given us to steward. I'm simply stating that what the creator of the universe has to say about our present and its implications for the future is a very, very grim picture, far more grim than David Attenborough could ever imagine. In fact, I find him saying quite naively prophetic words when he says our planet is headed for disaster because as we come to the book of Revelation, we're going to see that's exactly where it is heading. What will the end of the world look like? Well, I'm so glad you've come to church tonight. It's going to be a great night as we think through this question. Uh, if you don't know me, my name's Rowan. I'm one of the pastors here at EV. And I really am glad that you've come tonight because there's something that God's word has for us in the book of Revelation. that's going to shape the way we think about God and change the way we think about ourselves. For the past 10 weeks, we as a church have been walking through this book of Revelation and seeing about what it has to say about the here and the now, about life between Jesus' resurrection And the moment Jesus comes back, when He's put in place as King over all the earth, we've called it between the cross and the throne. And as we get to these chapters, they ask us, what do you think the end of the world will look like? I don't know if that's a question you've asked, if you woke up this morning thinking about. There's a sense in in which when we look around at the world, we don't think about the end There's so many good things going on. Um, Nature, relationships, food, laughter. You just see some of the scenes that came up in in that that, um, clip. And you think, man, the world that we live in is pretty awesome. But with the good comes more than a fair share of injustice and pain and suffering, doesn't it? For the majority, what we want in life is for the good to continue and the bad to stop. That's kind of like the the ultimate reality of life. But what we miss in the equation is the cause of the bad. What would it look like for the bad to stop? What has to stop to see that happen? David Attenborough rightly attributes the cause of the destruction of the world to people. That's exactly what the Bible says. However, he misses the reason why. And unknowingly, His solution is going to add to the problem. The end of the world is coming because God is going to pour His wrath out on all of humanity. That's the first point for us tonight. God's wrath is being revealed. Come with me to Romans 1, and we're going to see it from Paul before we get into Revelation and see it then in picture language there. Romans 1, uh, verse 20. For God's invisible attributes that is, his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly seen since the creation of the world, being understood through what he has made. As a result, people are without excuse. For though they know God, they did not glorify him as God or show gratitude. Instead, their thinking became worthless and their senseless hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man, birds, four-footed animals, and reptiles. You hear in the words of David Attenborough there that a world around us is so good and so important for us. But it's almost as if he's begun to worship the created things of this world, thinking that will be the solution to the problem, to see these things in the world go well while he's forgotten who made them. The way that he's thinking and the way that our world thinks is, yes, maybe that's the way forward. And we we focus on the here and now and we forget what Paul says next in verse 24. Therefore, God delivered them over to the desires of their hearts, to sexual impurity, so their bodies were degraded among themselves. They exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshipped and served what has been created instead of the Creator, who is praised forever. Amen. What Paul says at the start of a letter to Romans, which is so important, and by the way, if you're not getting along to Sharpen Up let's working through Romans, you are massively missing out. Such a good book. I want to encourage you to get along to that each week. But what Paul is saying uh, here in Romans is that humanity, you and me, every single one of us is guilty of the same crime. And that crime isn't that we haven't cared about the earth enough, it's that we've cared about it too much. So we care about the world around us, the material world, more than we ought, and we forget the one who made it. David Attenborough's solution to the destruction of the world is to place our focus on the world. But that's the very thing Paul says that got us here in the first place. We worship the created things rather than the creator. The whole purpose of the world around us, it's its amazing magnificence and, and depth and size. It is to lift our eyes to the one who made it. The psalmist says in Psalm 19, the heavens declare the glory of God and the expanse, the sky, proclaims the work of His hands. Day after day, they pour forth speech. Night after night, they communicate knowledge. As we stand in awe at the world around us, the eternal power and divine nature of the one who made it is clearly on display but we ignore that reality. We think life is about us, about the here and the now. We end up being like little children who've been given a packet of chips. Have you ever seen a kid who's been given a packet of chips It's kind of like the the parent gets the chips, they open the packet, they give it to a little kid, and the kid is like all their Christmases come at once. Grab the packet, trying to hold on to it, get the chips out, shove it in their face, like, this is awesome, right? And the chips are going in, they're super excited. They don't care about the father who bought the packet of chips, who got it off the shelf, who gave it to them, who opened it, who's holding it while they're eating it. They just get infatuated with the gifts and forget the giver. So too do you and I, do the same thing with the creator of the universe. We get infatuated with the world that he's given us, with the, the good things that we get to enjoy, and we shove them in our mouth and keep chasing after them, and we forget the one who sustains us, the one who gave them to us. Therefore, Paul says in verse 18 of Romans 1, God's wrath, his anger, his justice, is revealed from heaven against all godlessness and unrighteousness of people who by their unrighteousness, by their, by their wrong thinking, suppress the truth. We should be able to see it, but we suppress it. Since what can be known about God is evident among them, because God has shown it to them. We act like spoilt brat of children, stuffing our faces with the chips of this world's goodness and forget the one who gave it all to us, who sustains it, and who made us. We wonder why the world is the way it is. Why there is so much wrong in the world? We look for solutions to the pain and suffering we experience by playing with the chip packet, by looking at the the world around us, and thinking that, man, how can we see this get better? How can we fix the problems of the world when the problem is really staring at us in the mirror? The problems you and me, and our hell bent desire to worship the created things rather than the Creator. So, Romans says, God's wrath, His anger, His justice for rejecting Him is currently being poured out on the world, on you and me, because of this infatuation we have with the created world rather than the God who made it. From our perspective, we're we're just enjoying the world that God gave us. We're stuffing our faces with all the proverbial bag of chips we have. And from our perspective, it doesn't feel that bad. I'm just living in the world, you know? I'm just taking up what what God has given me, and whatever this world is, I'm just cruising along I'm not really against God. Romans tells us we are actively and willfully suppressing the truth, saying this world is about me and my enjoyment and happiness. And we're ignoring the one who sustains your heartbeat and allows you and me to take our very next breath. Here's the thing. Living like this is not good. It's not good for us, but it's incredibly offensive to the God who made us. And my hunch is we don't see how offensive it actually is. What we read about here in Romans, and even more clearly in Revelation 15 and 16, is that God will not let the world go on like this forever. Ever since Adam and Eve stepped onto the world stage and they made that choice to listen to the words of a serpent rather than the word of God, the world has been cursed. Genesis 3 says, uh, God says to Adam, cursed is the ground now because of you. Because you rejected me and you chose to be a little pretend God and determine what was right and wrong for yourself, you can no longer have access to the tree of life. And Adam and Eve are removed from the Garden of Eden, removed from God's presence, and the ground is cursed because of them. We have been living in a world that's cursed since Genesis 3. God's wrath, his anger for rejecting him has been trickling out from that moment on, giving us time to recognize that we need help, that the world isn't isn't as it is supposed to be, that we are not as we are supposed to be. And God has been patient throughout generation upon generation upon generation, waiting for people to recognize His goodness, waiting for people to come to Him. That's why there's so much evil and suffering in the world, is because God hasn't stepped in and said, enough. Most of human history, the disasters that are caused by nature or human nature, have been trumpet sounds, announcing God's judgment. There's been a call to wake up to the reality that God and God alone is to be worshipped. And the book of Revelation has been painting that reality in picture language. Here's a picture of what the book of Revelation structure looks like so far. We started out in, in the very beginning, in chapters 1 to 3, with the letters to the seven churches and a phone number you can text for questions if you want to do that later, shameless plug, we'd love to answer them. And we had those seven churches, and then in Revelation 4 and 5, we got to the reality of the throne room of God, and we saw that on that throne was this, or next to the throne was this slaughtered lamb who walked in, and everyone fell down and worshipped him, and that was Jesus, because of his death and resurrection, that he was to be worshipped. And then we saw the plans and purposes of God in this scroll. And we had a number of, of kind of cycles, where we saw these seven seals and seven trumpets, followed by unnumbered signs, or seven signs, if you if people disagree on that, but anyway. And then this week, we get to the seven bowls. What we see in all these sections of Revelation is God recognizing, showing us, that God is pouring out His judgment. The seven seals talked about world unrest, political powers, wrong and evil in the world that people were doing, and, and God was judging them, recognizing that the, the, the situation that we were in... And then we saw a hint that there would be some sort of final judgment, but we didn't hear much of it. And then we got to the seven trumpets, and we saw the same thing again, but intensified. The seven trumpets spoke of the destruction of the world, that the wrath of God being poured out, but only partially. Do you remember? On one third of the earth, it was poured out. One third of everything, God's trumpeted his judgment on the world. And that was talking about the reality of the age that we live in now, between when Jesus has risen and when he's coming back. Kind of like Tides that are coming in and rising with each wave. So God's judgment has been working throughout human history. Sometimes more, sometimes pulling back, but the tide has always been rising. And in each of these cycles, we see they're followed by something else. You get the seven seals, they're then followed by, then there's seven trumpets, then there's these signs, and then we get to the seven bowls. But you know what? After the seven bowls, there is no more. There's no more. And what we see with the seven bowls is they're very similar to the seven trumpets. In fact, the first four bowls talk about God's judgment on the physical world. It talks about the, the earth and the sea, the inland rivers and the sun in that order. Just like the first four trumpets did. In that same order. This is not some chronological picture of what's happening in history. You can't read Revelation and go, oh, I'm going to line these all up in order. They talk about the same events happening, but in increasing veracity. And then what we see with these last seven bowls, the ones that we just had read for us tonight, is that there is something very similar, but something different on view. It's the wrath of God that's coming, but this time, in the seven bowls, the destruction is total, total. It's no longer a third, it's all the people that are affected, all the life in the sea, all the rivers and the springs. What's on view in these seven bowls tonight is the high tide mark of God's judgment on the world. One final tsunami of God's wrath, where justice is delivered and it's right and good. Have a look at 15 verse 1. Then I saw another great and awe-inspiring sign in heaven, seven angels with the seven last plagues. For with them God's wrath will be completed." Every other cycle in the book of Revelation had another one that followed it, except for this one. Seven seals followed by seven trumpets, seven signs, seven bowls, and no more. There's no more sevens. These are the last plagues. This is what brings the world as we know it to its end. We tend to think that the world around us is just going to keep on spinning. Not many of us, I mean, how many of us woke up this morning thinking, oh, I wonder if this is the last day? I didn't, and I was preaching on this. We just think that the world is going to go on because it has beforehand, it'll keep doing it. We're like Dory in Finding Nemo. We think it'll just keep spinning, just keep spinning. See what I did there? Swimming, spinning, anyway. That's what we think, because it always has worked that way, and why would it be any different? people like David Attenborough are starting to say there's a tipping point in the ecological systems of our world and we start to think, oh, is that a sign? Well, I'm going to tell you later. Don't worry about looking for signs. There's something else we should know. But here God's Word says, there is going to be an end and there's nothing we can do about changing its timing or, or, or putting it off or stopping it from happening because there's actually something good about that end. There's something right and just. That's the second point we're looking at tonight. God's judgment is just. We need to be clear here that what causes the end of the world is not our actions as David Attenborough would have us believe, but it's God's right and just response to our actions. What causes the end of the world is not our actions, but God's right and just response to them. God's response is just. Look with me from Revelation 16, verse 5. I heard the angel of the waters say, You are just, the Holy One who is and who was, because you have passed judgment on these things, because they poured out the blood of the saints and the prophets. You have given them blood to drink. They deserve it. we start seeing the judgments poured out on on these people, it's those that have killed those that are following Jesus, that have said that Jesus is the true and living God and He is the King. And there's a sense, a rightness to the justice of God. That those who have spilt the blood of, of God's people, of those that God brought to Himself, of those that were loving the world by saying, Hey, there's a God. He loves you. Come and trust Him before it's too late. So their blood will be spilt. They deserve it. At the end of time, after God has judged the world and the horrible things that we see in this chapter are realized, people will celebrate. People will sing of God's judgment because He is right and fair, because He is holy like no one else, because He has passed judgment on the things that ought to receive judgment. Now, if I'm honest... I feel incredibly awkward saying that to you tonight. Do you squirm a little when you hear me say that? That my friends and family who I deeply love, who don't yet trust Jesus, that they, when they face the horrible judgment of God, will be experiencing something that we can celebrate? This doesn't feel right, does it? Passages like like this make me feel uncomfortable. Like I I love the idea of justice. I always want to see justice. Don't you hate it when injustice happens? I can't stand it. There's a number of stories throughout my life where people have done wrong things. One time it was Apple. They ripped off a friend of mine. I was so angry. They like made her buy a whole new computer when she didn't need to. They should have replaced it. I wrote to them. I did all this stuff. They finally sent me an email back saying, we understand the laws of your country mean you can take this to court. We encourage you to do so if you would like. Basically, they said, sue us. I'm like, yeah, right, that's going to happen. I was so frustrated. And we love hearing stories of when justice comes to fruition. I heard a story recently from a woman um, from Prague. Uh, In 1972, she found out that her husband had been consistently unfaithful to her, and that her seemingly happy marriage was actually a lie. She was so overcome with grief, and this is a true story that she decided she wanted to end her life and ran and jumped out the third-story window of the apartment she was living in. Surprisingly, her fall was broken by a pedestrian walking by. She lived, but the pedestrian died. And my hunch is that you feel sorry for this pedestrian. This is a true story, right? Until you hear that by some freak twist of justice... It was the husband that she landed on. (laughs) (laughs) Right? And there's this sense where we go, sucked in! You deserve someone to fall from the sky and crush you when you do that to your wife. And we kind of stand, maybe a little bit feeling like, oh, that's a bit awkward. There's a sense where we're like, hey, you kind of got what was coming to you. See, we love those stories when justice is delivered, but the problem is, for the majority of us, we, we recognize that the mannequin should be dropped on us, not someone else. We're happy to see justice on others, but we recognize that, if it were to come down to it, when it comes to God, we deserve His judgment too. I mean, imagine for a moment, if you wanted to see true justice, imagine that um, the police force in New Zealand was able to catalogue all the satellite imagery uh, from the last 10 years. And they had all the accounts of every time every car in New Zealand was travelling, where it was travelling to, how fast it was going. And then they looked and they found every time you broke the speed limit, and they sent you a bill. Who likes justice now? (laughs) Not me. (laughs) I only do the speed limit when there's a police car coming or there's a camera there, right? That's, That's the general way that people operate. But that would be just. We hate the idea of justice when it's focused on us. And that puts us as humans in an odd situation. It puts us in a position where we value justice towards others, but not towards ourselves which means we end up with crooked compasses. We're not actually able to enact justice to others because there's a sense where we're like, well, I can't, I don't want to be fully just to that person because if I am, I'm being a hypocrite because I deserve justice as well. And so we find ourselves not being able to think very well about right and wrong. And our compasses of what justice is and what is good and right get morphed and changed. And so we, when we hear that the end of the world is coming and that God will be delivering His justice... We immediately go, oh, that's a bit heavy handed, isn't it? Do you know why we say that? Because we don't want God's justice on ourselves. What Revelation 15 and 16 shows us clearly is that God's justice is fair. It is fair. The second thing it shows us is that, well, the third thing is that it is final as well. That's the next point. God's judgment is final. There are no second chances. In fact, Revelation tells us that even when this judgment of God is being poured out, that you'd think we'd wake up to the reality of what's going on, we don't want a second chance. We reject it. Have a look at Revelation 16 verse 9. It says this, And people were scorched by the intense heat of the sun as part of this judgment. The whole world, right? So what did they do? They turned to God and said, We are so sorry for what we've done and repented. No! No! They blasphemed the name of God. They said, God, you suck. The one who has power over the plagues. They knew he was in control, and they didn't turn to him. They did not repent and give him glory. So often we think we'll make that deathbed confession. That when things get really tough, then's when we'll call out to God, and go, God, save me. What Revelation shows us is as the judgment of God comes out, it just makes us harsher and harder. Left to our own desires, we are so hell-bent on serving the created things rather than the creator, that even in the final judgment, we won't come to our senses. I think we sometimes picture hell as a place full of people regretting how they've acted on earth, wishing that they could go back. But hell is a place full of people who still think they know better than God, that do not repent and will not turn to him because they are convinced They are the center of the world. That is what you and I are naturally like. But by God's grace and His work in our lives, that would be you and me as well. I think the temptation comes to us to think, you know what, God, I think you're just a little bit heavy-handed. When we do that, we think that we are more just than God. If we think, oh, that justice of yours is too strong, it's a little unfair, I don't know if it's right. If we feel ourselves saying, I'm not sure I can praise God for His justice, and we think we're better than God. We're putting ourselves, well, we're making God in our image, saying, ah, I'm going to make Him a little bit better. I'll do some good PR work for Him. Let me assure you, friends, hell is a place full of people who think they are more just than God, but who fail to see the depths of their rebellion and the rightness of of his wrath. Let's not let that be us tonight. I'm not saying we shouldn't be affected by the somber reality of what judgment brings, of the fact that we deserve death and judgment and hell. God does not delight in the death of a sinner. But the next point in your outline, God's judgment is worthy of our praise. God's judgment is worthy of our praise. Look with me, Revelation 16, verse 13. Then I saw three unclean spirits, like frogs, coming from the dragon's mouth, from the beast's mouth, and from the mouth of the false prophet. For they are demonic spirits performing signs who travel to the kings of the whole world to assemble them for battle on the great day of God, the Almighty. As this sixth bowl is kind of poured out, we hear of the river Euphrates being dried up. Really, that's not saying, how is that judgment? Well, that's letting the nations from the east, typically where God's adversaries have come from, come together. And the nations who are against God's people gather and conspire all at the beat of their king and captain, the beast, Satan. We heard about him a couple of weeks ago, described as the dragon and then the beast and the false prophet, and we talked about them being some form of, a, of an unholy trinity. Satan here is pretending to be like God, Father, Son, and Spirit. So he is being um, dragon, beast, and false prophet. And here he's trying to pretend to be God and try and get the world around to worship created things, not the creator. And he's standing there whispering to us, Yes, eat the chips, it's so good. And we go, Ah, oh, the chips are great. And we forget the Creator. We make ourselves the center of the world. Every evil thing in this world has its root and cause at the suggestion of Satan. Oh yes, we give in to it. Absolutely. We are still 100% morally cap- culpable. But he is there leading. If we're not for God, John calls us children of Satan. But what God does in this Bowl number six, what he does at the end of the world is he takes that great evil beast and he puts him to end. All the wrong in the world, all the evil, all the pain caused by the dragon and his unholy trinity is put to an end. He gets what is deserved and, and, and the evil of the world is put away with and that's something that we can stand and go praise God. God. Praise God that he's doing that. Way back when we heard about that first set of seven in the seals in Revelation 6, the seals is in the things that seal a scroll, not the sea creatures. Or, or, there you go. When we heard about those on the fifth seal, we read this, Revelation 6, 9. When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who'd been slaughtered because of the word of God and the testimony they had given. They cried out with a loud voice, Lord, one who is holy and true, how long until you judge those who live on the earth and avenge our blood? Do you remember that? Those that have been martyred, we read of them just a little earlier in in this talk. Those that trusted Jesus and were killed for their faith, their question when the seals were were being opened is, when will justice come? We long for justice. When will our blood be avenged, Lord? When will that happen? Revelation 16 answers that in verse 5. I heard the angel of the waters say, You are just the Holy One, who is, who was, because you have passed judgment on these things. Because they poured out the blood of the saints and the prophets, you've given them blood to drink, and they deserve it. And then listen to the way they praise God. I heard the altar say, those who are there, Yes, Lord God, the Almighty, true and just are your judgments. They praise God for his justice. They praise God that justice has come. And that the evil one and those that are with him have been brought to justice. As hard as it is to hear, God's justice is something that is to be praised. Yes, Lord God, true and just are your judgments. In fact, those words are echoed from the words of the song that's written at the start of chapter 15. It's the song of Moses that has all sorts of echoes of when Israel came out of Egypt, when they came from the the suffering that was there in Egypt, they crossed the Red Sea and God brought the waters of the Red Sea down on the Egyptian army who were oppressing them. And they stood on the bank of the other side of the Red Sea and they sang this song to God, praising Him for His justice. So too that song is expanded and given here. At the end of all time, God will be praised for his judgment. The Psalms are full of such songs, of people praising God for his justice, and we feel awkward about it, like we've said, but the psalmist doesn't. Those gathered around the throne room of God don't. God does not feel embarrassed about his justice, and neither should I. When we censor God, we think we're doing him a favor, but we're not. We're actually asking God to worship our view of what he should be like, rather than us worshiping him. God's faithful people get excited about the righteous judgments of God. They sing about it. They long for it and hunger for it, for the glory of God to be seen, for for the world around to bow in worship before him. Not in a way that we say, ha, sucked in. No, no, no. Recognizing that we deserve that as well, and God's judgment and justice is right but we can stand and rejoice because of what He has done for us, because of nothing that we have done and all that He has done. Let me ask you tonight, when was the last time you stopped and thanked God for His justice? When was the last time that you praised Him, that He will bring all the right punishment to the wrongs And the evil and the rebellion in this world. You know what? For those of us who've trusted in Jesus, that's something we can praise God for as well because He did bring justice. It just didn't land on us. And that's my last point for us tonight judgment is something we don't need to experience ourselves. Judgment is something we don't need to experience ourselves. In Revelation 15 verse 2, it speaks of those who've won victory over the beast. Those who are a great multitude from every nation and tribe. It reminds us of those who were gathered uh, in that picture in the earlier chapters of Revelation who, who God has brought to himself, who trusted in the blood of the lamb. Do you remember that lamb that was slain, whose blood washed those who trust him white? Jesus faced the justice of God, the true and right justice that we can praise God for, but He did it for us. He took what we deserve. And when you recognize how true and right and good and, and strong and massive is the judgment of God, oh, it makes you be amazed so much more, doesn't it? That Jesus did that for you and for me. The only sane response when we recognize what we deserve and then what Jesus has done for us is to run into his open arms and say thank you. And to say thank you so much that you faced what I deserve. Because of nothing that I have done and everything that you have done, I can stand forgiven. Revelation 16 verse 17, John tells us the seventh bowl is Poured out in the air. And a loud voice came from the temple of the throne saying, It is done. What happens, and we're gonna see this in more detail, is that Satan is finally defeated. And the way God does it is simply by a couple of words: it is done. The great battle at the end, it's called Armageddon. You're like, ooh, there's Armageddon, here it is in the Bible. What's it about? Maybe you can ask questions, I'll talk about it something in a sec. But the way that great battle finishes is just with these simple words. It is done. Megiddo was a place in Israel where lots of battles were fought, and Armageddon is just using that word as as a place where the battles have been fought. It's kind of saying, it's not actually going to be here, this final battle between Satan's kind of cronies and gods. It's just saying, Armageddon is the place of the final battle. It's the moment God says, literally, I'm putting an end to it all. And what does he say? It is done. It is done. As Jesus declared those very same words on a cross and then breathed his last, the wrath of God was poured out on him. It is finished, he said. And for those that have trusted in him, God will say once more, it is finished. At that final judgment, when we ought to come before God, we know if we're trusting in Jesus that he has paid the penalty for us. For those that do not trust in Jesus, they will hear the words, It is done and experience the full wrath and justice and judgment finally and fully of the creator of the universe the key to recognize here is that that story of experiencing the wrath of god ourselves doesn't have to be your story We're told about this reality, not so we can watch for signs of the times, so that when they're coming close, we think, oh, the end of the world might be coming soon, then we can flip and put in our best behavior because Santa Claus is coming to town. No, we're told that so we can be ready. Jesus tells us to be ready because that day will come like a thief in the night. When I was in my early teens... um, We'd been uh, looking after our neighbor's house and they'd gone away on holidays. And I woke up in the middle of the night hearing these really loud bangs. Dad kind of went out to look. Then I heard sirens. They were a little bit down the road. Eventually what, what I found out happened was that someone had burgled our neighbor's house while they were away on holidays. Uh, and then they decided to set it on fire. And the bangs were that they had guns, the ammunition of the guns going off, and the whole house burned down. They lost everything. The thief doesn't send you a, a kind of a letter in the mail. Hey, next Tuesday, 3 o'clock a.m., I'm going to come to your place, just letting you know ahead of time. That, that's not what happens. So, to the end of the world, it is coming like a thief in the night. Our friends were on holidays, we were asleep. They lost everything. So at the end of this passage. Jesus gives us this warning do not be like them. Do not be asleep when the end of the world as we know it comes. Come to Jesus now. Put your life in His hands. Don't be found undressed and naked. And then be like, whoa, and you get up and it's shameful. You're like, whoa. Actually, clothe yourself now in the clothes washed with the blood of a lamb. Friends, the end of the world is most certainly coming. And what's certain about that is that God will be glorified. The only question for you and me is, will we glorify God willingly or unwillingly? Will we glorify God unwillingly by by rejecting Jesus and being under his just and right judgment and the world around who have trusted him saying, yes, this is right, and people seeing that that judgment is right? Or will we wake up to the beauty and the majesty and the mercy shown to us in Jesus? And clothe ourselves in the clothes of the Lamb and live our lives now to point to Jesus. Ready for His return, pointing to others to live for Him. The great question of the end of the world is a question that you and I need to make a response to today. And it shapes the way we live and who we live for. So how will you live the rest of your days? Will you live understanding we're in the last days? Will you live understanding Jesus could come back at any moment? Will you live understanding that God's judgment and justice is right and true? And that in the final judgment of God, the enemies of God will not survive. Will you live your life in the protection of the loving death and resurrection of the lamb that was slain for you? Let's pray that God would help us to do exactly that. Let's pray. Father God, tonight there's a sense in which when we look at your judgment, it is scary. The reality that Jesus is coming back and that we will get what we deserve terrifies us. But we are so, so thankful that your judgment is something that we need not endure. That because of your son, we can stand forgiven because he faced the penalty for us. So we ask, Lord, that you would help us to live as people pointing others to know your son. To see the great solution to the end of the world found in Jesus is not found in worshipping the world, but worshipping the one who made it. And would you help us to be people who align our view with yours that are happy to praise you for your judgment and justice. Show us, Lord, where we think differently from you. Correct us, mold us, and shape us. And today, for those of us who don't yet know you, would you clearly reveal yourself? Would you draw us to you so that we might find that great hope of life forever with you and forgiveness, not having to face your wrath? Father, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.